Back to Psalm 26 as we come to study it together this evening. Psalm 26. And we're thinking tonight about being ready for worship. Ready for worship. Where do you go when you've had enough of the taunts and the tantrums and the foolishness of the world? Where do you go when you feel like no one is listening? That you've been misunderstood? Ignored or perhaps even deliberately attacked. Some people will go to their phones and send out the same message to maybe five or six people. Hoping that at least one will get in touch and commiserate with them and show sympathy to them. Some people go to the fridge. They might comfort eat their way towards feeling better about life. Some people go to social media. Invent all their problems for the world to see without thinking about How they might add to their sense of misunderstanding. Tragically an increasing number of people if they feel attacked or put down. They become addicted. Depressed. They might even wonder if life is worth living. Life in this world is tough. It's at times frustrating and stressful and anxiety inducing and even unfair. Where should we go when we feel any of those things? Well, the psalmist David went to worship. When life was unfair, he turned to the Lord. When he was discouraged, misunderstood or attacked, he worshipped the Lord, his Father in heaven. And one mark of Christian maturity is the level of expectation and importance we place upon worship. And particularly upon weekly public worship as we have opportunity for it. A mark of Christian maturity is the value we place in those times and what we expect to receive from those times. We don't go to worship with the primary desire of making ourselves feel better about something. We go to give glory to God, but in so doing, God inevitably ministers to us. Regardless of the preacher uh, that may be preaching or the circumstances of our lives at that time, what do you expect from the times you set aside To worship the Lord. Do you expect them to be the most important. The most helpful. The most and if you like reorienting moment in the day or in the week. The most spiritually vital part of the week. Do you expect that reading God's word and crying out to him in prayer. And being with other believers will be a better form of comfort. Than any of those other things or anything else you might think of. David did expect those things of worship. And so did the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell us that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, regularly took time away from the crowds to go and and to meet with his Father in prayer, in private worship. He also obeyed God by publicly worshipping each Sabbath day of his life. Even on the cross, with the hatred of the world in full display, the accusations and the taunts Raining down upon him. Christ worshipped. He appealed to his father in prayer. Asking that the father forgive the sinners in front of him. And committing his spirit into his father's hands. It's through Christ the suffering worshipper. That we are free to come and worship today. Or at any time. And in this psalm we see David turning to worship. Rather than turning to anything else. As he deals with a a difficult moment in his life. 
want to think first of all in this psalm, the first thing that we see in this psalm is the psalmist seeking God's judgment. Seeking God's judgment. And we see that in verses 1 to 3. The psalm begins, vindicate me, O Lord. And verse 2 uses similar words, prove me, try me, test my heart and soul. Uh, The word there, vindicate, could also be translated quite simply, judge, judge me, O Lord. David is appealing to the, the, the supreme court of the universe, the supreme court of heaven and earth, the court of God himself. The world has already judged him. They hate him. They're spreading lies about him. Someone is making life difficult for him. And as we said before, David had no shortage of enemies, people like that. And, and by the way that he asks for God to test him and examine him, he's appealing to the one who knows him best. He's appealing uh, for God's verdict in the midst of perhaps a time when other people are, are rendering their verdicts on David. One writer says, David wisely appeals over the heads of friends and enemies directly to God. If you have a, a case that you want to bring through our human court system, um, I think I'm right in saying anyway that uh, you can't just take it straight to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. It has to go through other courts first. But David here, he doesn't go to the court of human or public opinion. He doesn't go to uh, get comfort from friends or to argue with his enemies. He goes straight to the court of heaven because it's God's opinion that matters most. Spurgeon says of David here, worried and worn out by the injustice of men, the innocent spirit flies from its false accuser to the throne of the eternal right. The one whose opinion is always right, the one whose opinion matters most. And again, this is what Christ did. He heard his father speak to him several times during his earthly ministry in that supernatural way. Remember at his baptism, his father spoke And again, it is transfiguration, his father spoke. And Jesus went each and every day, we would assume, and and, and regularly for more prolonged times. And he prayed, he sought the opinion and the help and the blessing of his father, even in his darkest moments. And David here, the original psalmist, is doing likewise. He, he, He wants to come to the place of worship and be revived and refreshed by Time spent in the place of worship with the people of God. But before he does that, before he comes to public worship, he comes here in private worship and pours out his heart to God and asks for God's verdict on his life. The verdict of other people is that David is guilty of some sin or some transgression. But he says in verse 2 to God, test my heart and my mind. In other words, my inner being, who I really am. The place that only God can see. It's always important to remember as we read the Psalms of David. uh, Two things to bear in mind when we see these statements of him describing himself as innocent and blameless and full of integrity. The first thing is to remember that Christ was and is all those things perfectly. So Christ as he read these Psalms and sang these Psalms. He is the perfectly innocent man. But in terms of David, who originally wrote the psalm, he's not claiming himself to be a perfectly innocent man, but he's saying that he is innocent of the things that he is being accused of. That he's innocent of the, of the accusations that others are bringing against him. 
Notice in verse 3, however, that he knows himself. He knows his own feelings and his own lack of perfection. And so he says in verse 3, as he appeals for God's judgment, he says, Your steadfast love is before my eyes. David appeals to God on the basis of God's grace, his steadfast love. Whatever it is that the world has said about David or to David, again, he shows at the beginning of this psalm that he is most concerned with God's verdict on his heart. Friends, it's a fact of life that being a Christian, people are going to say things about you that aren't true. They certainly say things about Christians in general, but maybe you will also have the experience of someone personally uh, speaking personally about you and saying things that are simply not true. It is bound to happen. It goes with the territory. It might be the, the cheeky, sniping colleague giving backhanded compliments or taking advantage of your more hardworking attitude or gossiping about you in the staff room. It might be the neighbour spreading stories about uh, spreading rumours, false allegations about your business dealings, attacking your integrity. It might be the other pupils or students in your school or college, again, gossiping, mocking, attacking your Christian faith. There might even be times when Satan has so demoralised us that we don't believe the truth about ourselves. That we're so, so full of doubts and insecurities, maybe a, a misplaced sense of guilt. It just sends us spiralling down into real discouragement and anxiety and, uh, and just feeling demoralised. Whether it's unbelieving neighbours or whether it's our own weak flesh, we need to realise that ultimately the verdict that matters about us is God's. And the best way to guard against bitterness or vengefulness when we're attacked by the world is to take it to the Lord, as the psalmist does here. Are you facing judgment from someone in the world? Ask for the judgment of God. Are you being examined and scrutinized by the world? Remember that God knows your heart. Are you being attacked or accused of this or that by the world? Remember that God's verdict on your heart matters most. It's one of the great challenges for us living in this world. We know that one day there is going to be a verdict that vindicates us from the hatred and the false accusations of the world. But that verdict hasn't been publicly proclaimed yet. You'll sometimes see people on television, uh, maybe on the evening news, standing outside a courtroom and they speak of the sense of relief and, and thanks, thankfulness that uh, they have been vindicated, that finally a judgment has been rendered in their favour. For the Christian, ultimately that hasn't happened yet. Although one day it will. But usually it's our opponent's whose opinion seems to be respected and whose accusations seem to stick. But friends, there is a judge in heaven who will one day come to judge the earth and he knows your heart. And perhaps there are a lot of problems both in the church and outside it that would be solved if we would believe this more wholeheartedly, that God's opinion matters most, that God knows the truth of it all. He knows how hard you're working for your employer or for your church or in your home. 
If you're innocent of accusation, he knows, just as he knew at the cross, that his son was innocent, though he carried the sins of his people. Ultimately, God will judge you rightly, just as he judged Christ rightly. Remember that Satan, whose name literally means accuser, is a defeated enemy. And remember too that we're no better than this sin-cursed world by nature. We might not be guilty of the things they accuse us of, but we are guilty of plenty of other things that maybe many people don't even know about. And it's only by God's steadfast love to which David appeals here that we can be judged righteous in his sight. It's only by grace, his grace to us in Christ that we can boldly ask for him to judge us when the world is falsely accusing us. And so get ready for worship, first of all, by seeking God's judgment when the world is unfairly judging. Second way that we get ready for worship is by separating from God's enemies. Separating from God's enemies. This is verses 4 to 8 of the psalm. Again, remember that David is coming aside from the hatred of the world and he's going to spend time worshipping God. He's prepared for that first by, by, by asking God to examine his heart, uh, to see if there's really any guilt that he's been, in what he's been accused of. And David now begins to uh, argue his innocence on the basis of God's grace. If you look at, at verse 4, he says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Language there is quite similar to Psalm 1, you know, where David says, Blessed is the man who does not walk or sit or stand in the company of sinners. And what David is saying here, friends, is that he's not even guilty by association with those who are accusing him of whatever it is, hypocrisy or wickedness of some kind. David is saying here, he doesn't even spend time. He, he purposefully avoids liars and hypocrites and Wicked men, he wants nothing to do with them. The old saying goes, you can't steal the corn if you were never in the field. And David says he hasn't committed the sins of hypocrites and liars and evildoers because he's never even been in their company. Notice the strength of David's language in verse 5. I hate the assembly of evildoers. That's the strongest possible word he could have used. He hates when people are just gathering for worldly purposes to, to devise sinful schemes, to, to, to revel in their own wicked ways. He hates that kind of gathering. And in contrast, he says in verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. He hates the gathering of the wicked, but what he does do is he prepares for worship and for participating in worship. That's what verse 6 is telling us. He's prepared for worship. That language of washing his hands and going around the altar. Anyone who came to worship God at at the tabernacle, as it was in David's day, it eventually, of course, became the temple in the days of Solomon. But whichever it was, the priests, they had to come and they had to wash had to thoroughly wash themselves before they conducted worship at the tabernacle or the temple. And that was a symbolic way of saying that they were 
they were seek, they were they were seeking cleansing from sin. They were separating themselves from the defilement of the world. They were coming to worship. They were preparing to meet with God. David is saying here that if we come to worship God casually, that if we come straight from a life of deceit and lust and greed and just think we can saunter into God's presence without a second thought, we're hypocrites, we're foolish, we're misguided. David says there is to be a separation between ourselves and our world and our sin as we come to worship God. There's to be thought and care and preparation that goes into it. So many people around us in Northern Ireland where there's this nominal religious life, although it's maybe a nominalism that is quickly dying away. But for many people around us, they have this attitude, I'll go to Mass on a Saturday night or worship on Sunday morning. And once I've ticked that box, I can do whatever I like the rest of the week. Just straight back to doing my own thing and living for my own glory and pursuing my own interests. Friends, some of God's strongest punishments in eternity will be for that kind of hypocrisy. Jesus' strongest words of condemnation were for those who made a show of religion, of going through the outward routine of worship, but whose hearts were far from God. David consciously separates himself from the world. He's not going to treat the worship of God as a tick-the-box exercise to get over and done with as quick as he can to get back to reveling in the world's pursuits. He's going to prepare himself. He's going to live with integrity. He's going to have nothing to do with those who gather together in deceitful and hypocritical ways. Those people are the enemies of God. And David wants to be a friend of God. He's not going to spend his time acting like an enemy of God and then go worship God as if there's no inconsistency. He says in verse 5, I hate the assembly of the wicked, but notice verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Notice that, that contrast. He hates the habitation of the wicked. He loves the gathering of God's people in God's presence. He's thinking here of going to the place of worship in Jerusalem as it was in his day. David knew that the glory of God, the presence of God, couldn't be confined to one place, uh, even to Jerusalem. God's glory fills the earth, as David writes in other Psalms. But David also knew that God had chosen to be especially present with his chosen people in that chosen place of Jerusalem. And so wherever God had commanded his people to be, wherever God had promised his blessing to be that's where David wanted to be is worship where we want to be is God who we want to be with and his people above everything else we're to love the people of the world we're to share the gospel with the people of the world we thought about that this morning we'll think about it again uh, God willing next week and later in the summer but at various times and in various ways, the Christian has no choice but to separate from the world. We can't take part in so-called Christian worship services, for example, that completely distort the gospel and the person and work of Christ and 
offer all kinds of so-called worship that isn't worship at all. We cannot celebrate lifestyles or be accepting in the community of God's people in terms of just saying that's a valid way to live. You can be committed to Christ and still live that way. Lifestyles that are a perversion and an insult to the way that God has made us. We cannot treat the Lord's day the way our unsaved colleagues and neighbours and friends might do. We can't leave God's word out of our decision making when it comes to who leads our country or what kind of laws should be passed. We should hate the wickedness, the disobedience, the hypocrisy of our world. Spurgeon says, what God hates, we must hate. God loves the world. He has sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. But God also hates the world. Hates the sin of the world. And we are to have that same holy hatred. There are times when we have to separate. There are times to be engaged. There are times to be salt and light. There are other times where we have to maintain our our, our difference from the world. Christian young people, it's okay to have non-Christian school friends. But there may be times where you have to separate from them. From the conversation. From the group chats. From the activities, the fashion choices, whatever it may be. Older Christians, it's okay to have interests and hobbies. God has made us to enjoy things like that. But there's a time when we need to separate from them and be in the place of worship, whether private or public. There might be times when you literally have to separate yourself from conversations in your workplace. Or from seminars in the workplace. Gatherings of non-Christian friends or family because you're not going to be a hypocrite. And engage in whatever they may be doing. And I wonder if it's not a great problem for the wider Christian church in the Western culture today. That we are so busy falling over ourselves to appeal to the world. Or to show how much we can be just like the world. That we've entirely watered down our faith and our witness in the eyes of the world. David says, I love, I love the habitation Of your house, O Lord. Is it true of you? Is it true of me that we would rather be here with with each other, singing praise, feeding on the word, reminding ourselves and meditating upon the glory of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. We'd rather be doing that than anything else. Because here is truth and here is righteousness. And here are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what we will be doing for eternity. And so David, having sought God's judgment, having separated himself from from, uh, the world, David thirdly and finally, we see him here in the psalm rejoicing in God's ransom. Rejoicing in God's ransom. And we see this in verses 9 to 12. As I mentioned earlier, it's important to understand that David is not claiming to be a sinless man in the Psalms. But what he's saying is that he is innocent of whatever these particular false allegations are that from time to time people would bring against him. Whether it was King Saul or his son Absalom or other people as well that rose up as enemies of David. And so look what he says in verse 9. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners nor my life with bloodthirsty men. 
in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. David's worst nightmare is that God would treat him as an enemy, an evildoer, because he knows what will happen to evildoers. God is going to sweep them away. Again, similar language to Psalm 1, uh, that the wicked are like chaff that the wind will drive away. And friends, this is something else that we need to remember when the world might rise up in vicious attacks against us, that when people attack us or accuse us or lie about us, there's a judgment coming. And if they don't repent, they are headed for that judgment. And if they don't repent, they're going to be swept away. Jesus compared it to a farmer gathering in his crop, separating the wheat from the tares, keeping the fruitful crops burning the unfruitful up in fire. David says he doesn't want to end up like that. Do not sweep my life away with sinners. And you see, friends, even though he's innocent of the crimes he's been accused of, David knows before God that he isn't completely perfect. Again, that's why he says in verse 2 that he stands before God only on the basis of God's steadfast love, his grace. That's why he says in verse 11, redeem me and be gracious to me. You only need grace if you deserve judgment. And it's through grace that David describes himself in verse 11 as a man of integrity. Integrity means wholeness, something that stays the same in different circumstances. David says he wants to be the same man on the outside as he is on the inside. He doesn't want to be breaking his life into pieces, giving that bit to God and another bit of his life to sin and another bit of his life to pleasing the world. He wants to be a man of integrity, trusting in the grace and redemption of God. Look how he finishes the psalm. Verse 12, My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. David is ready for worship. He has sought God's judgment in the face of the world's unfair judgments. He has separated himself from evildoers. And now he wants to come and be in the great assembly. He wants to be amongst God's people participating in worship. That's where David goes when the attacks and taunts of the world have been raining down upon him. That's where he goes to rejoice and to remind himself of where he truly stands before his God. Friends, the world can say what it likes. It can stamp its feet and bang its fists. It can gossip about us and lie about us and laugh about us. So what? When we come here, when we worship on the basis of God's steadfast love, We know that we stand on level ground. We know that the judge of all the earth will do right. We know that we have a saviour who has shown us the steadfast love that David sings of in this psalm. A saviour who has lived this psalm. A saviour who has lived through the vile taunts of the world but who has overcome the world. And Jesus has said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. But he also says, take heart, I have overcome the world. We have a saviour who cried out to the father in his integrity, father into your hands I commit my spirit. 
We have a saviour who trusted in the plan of God to show steadfast love to sinners. We have a saviour who though without sin himself became sin for us so that we could be counted righteous, full of integrity, friends of God rather than friends of the world. Come to worship, friends. Coming to worship, we come to remind ourselves of who we really are, regardless of what the world may claim. Only God's opinion truly counts. What does he see as he looks at you? Does he see someone just getting involved in the world's chat and the world's wickedness and foolishness? Does he see someone this evening struggling under the pressure of those accusations and those taunts that you live with? But does he see the perfect integrity The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ covering over all your sin. Does he see a heart inclined to walk in faithfulness? Does he see someone who shares his hatred of the sin and the foolishness of the world? Does he see a believer who has high expectations and high hopes and who places a high priority on worship and who comes to worship only through the precious, redeeming, rescuing blood of Christ? Praise God for his steadfast love to us in Christ. And when the world attacks, get ready to worship. Amen.